I suppose if there was a text that fit my temperament the best, it would be the verses that we will be reading momentarily. And if there is subject matter for a group of men who will never be the same, uh, this text captures it well. This particular piece of Scripture comes about 40 days after Christ's resurrection. Jesus has met with the disciples. He has taught them. He's given them instructions. And in verse 9, we see a description of his farewell. I find it fascinating to see Luke's emphasis here in Acts 1. We read in verse 9, after he said this, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. The disciples were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. At Coney Island, they call it the cyclone. In Mason, Ohio, theirs is called the beast. In Nagashima, Japan, it's called the street dragon. And in Denver, it's called the twister. Roller coasters. And the souls that love them. I want you to know right now I'm not one of them. Maybe it's because I remember my last ride. Uh, I remember that the line moved much faster than I hoped. My date wanted the front seat. They strapped me in, and then there's that slow, steady climb to the top. No way out, no turning back, no looking back. I remember saying to my date, will you please hold me? <laughs> At the bottom of a roller coaster, you can see everything. But then as I climbed, I see less and less land and more and more sky. And then there's the horizon line. And then when I get to the top, it's all sky. So now, thanks to a roller coaster, you should know what a horizon line is. Horizon lines, and no matter where you see them, is the line that separates what we can see from what we can't see. So whether it's on an ocean, whether it's on the summit of a mountain, whether it's as the sun rises or that beautiful view of the Continental Divide as you drive west over I-70 towards uh, the, the, the height of those hills. You see horizons. 
some horizon lines insinuate themselves into our routines. Whether we like it, horizon lines tease us. They taunt us. I dare you to step over this line. Horizon lines bully us into saying hello to what we don't know, what we don't expect, what we have not chosen, and may not like. Horizon lines promise mystery, adventure, ups, downs, twists, turns, slows, and fasts. And I have to tell you right now, my life has been full of horizon lines. A principal of a high school handed me a diploma. I held my sons and daughters in my arms when they were only seconds old. After seven years of building a company, my boss walked into my office and said they were eliminating my department and me. A horizon line can be a financial reversal, the, the death of a loved one, a doctor's diagnosis, a surgeon, a divorce. A horizon line can be a promotion. It can be a romance. It can be a new friend. Horizon line can be new leadership. Horizon lines are part of the architecture of life. Think of it. What do we have here after Jesus' birth and his ministry and his death and his resurrection and his post-resurrection appearances? Jesus left. He told the apostles he was going to leave. He told them when. He told them why. He told them what to do. And then he did it. He left. And just before he left, the disciples in this usual, unusual experience, asked Jesus the question that bugged them the most. And he answered them, it is not for you to know. And then as he's leaving, we see the disciples in this remarkably unusual experience. A group of men staring, frozen, just standing there, swept into the arms of apprehension, swept into the arms of surprise and profound confusion. And then from then on, life was one step and then another beyond sight. Maria sang her way across a horizon. What will this day be like, I wonder? It could be so exciting to be out in the world, to be free. My heart should be wildly rejoicing. Oh, what's the matter with me? I'm about ready to cross a horizon line. I am up the hill. Uh, I want to remind you that I'm not over it yet. <laughs> but in just a few minutes, I will be called to take one step beyond sight, and so will we. What will this day be like? I wonder. I'm not an, an elder, but I am an older. So I thought this morning in being in this rather unusual spot to share with you how I have responded to horizon lines. I want to take my time to tell you how I have done it. Let me count the ways. 
I wish I could say to you this morning that I'm proud of the way I have crossed horizon lines. Some of my ways have been sloppy, some have been selfish, some have been really short-sighted. And then when I looked at all of them after I had made the list, I said to myself, I can do much better. So after I told you how I've done it, I will tell you how I want to do it. One way I've responded to horizon lines is incoherence. Let me tell you a little bit about me. I have a rough time putting together what I feel and what I think and what I should do and what I will do into a nice, neat package. My incoherence uh, occurs when I can't put it all together, so I, I have to take lots of time, lots of time to put things together and to become coherent. And I do that in my man cave. Now, to the preaching team, I need to give you a footnote here, because right? I'm going to show the congregation my sermon notes with the footnote that says, don't ever let your wife edit your sermon, okay? What I'm going to show you on the screen now are my notes the way I wrote them. <clears throat> One horizon line I face is if and when Jan gets mad at me. On the screen now are my notes the way Jan edited them. One horizon I face is when Jan gets mad at me. <laughs> Again, on the screens are my notes the way I wrote them. So I have a man cave. It's the place where I do mindless things. On my screen now are the notes the way Jan edited them. <laughs> I did get a card from her that said to my one and only horizon line after she read them. In my man cave, I take comfort in what Tom Peters said in his book, Thriving on Chaos. If you're not confused, you're not paying attention. So now if I go into my man cave, I'll do a Sudoku puzzle or pedal a stationary bike that goes nowhere, or I'll cut clippings out of the Golf Digest, or I'll just stare at the wall. But do you want to know what my, my favorite man cave activity is? It's watching a few good men movie for the 80th time. Every time I hear Colonel Jessup say to Lieutenant Caffey, I run my unit the way I run my unit. You want to investigate me? Roll the dice and take your chances. I eat breakfast 300 yards from 4,000 Cubans who are trained to kill me, so don't think for one second that you can come down here and flash a bat and make me nervous. Ah. After I hear Colonel Jessup see that, I'm ready to put it all together again. The second way that I handle horizon lines is indifference. And I know I've passed this trait on to my grandson indifference. Ever watch a group of five-year-olds play organized little league baseball? 
Little, little boys at five years old love to imitate male adults. So you have these crisp, clean, colorful, colorful uniforms and hats, a mouth loaded with bazooka bubblegum, lamp black smudged onto the eyes, a slam on the bat that's as hard as can be, a macho spit out of the side of the mouth, mandatory adjustment of the midsection protective device. So here is my cherished grandson, five years old. He hits the ball to right field, and he drops the bat. So far, so good. But then he runs towards the pitcher. <laughs> and the crowd, all of these well-meaning parents, are screaming instructions to the runner, and the coach is frantically pointing to first base. <laughs> So he rounds first base and he rounds second base with a, with a home run, a legitimate possibility, and then he stops to visit with the shortstop. <laughs> They're in the same class. I expect indifference from a five-year-old, but I put my indifference to work in a different way. I, I know now that one word or one idea or one bit of insight can change how I deal with life beyond sight. But then I think about the books I haven't read, the classes I skipped, the advice I didn't take, the rules I didn't follow, the warnings I didn't see, the clues I didn't look for, and the prayers I didn't say, all because I assumed that life beyond sight was less complicated than it really is. Another way that I have responded to the horizon lives in my life is self-indulgence. I remember getting an email from my brother, and in the email he described the tumor doctors had discovered on the lining of his brain. And I'll tell you, I hate where my mind went. Do I have it? Is it genetic? Will I lose my brotherly companionship? What's going to happen to me? And here we are this morning in a, a literal avalanche of, of, of excitement and expectancy. It's just minutes away. And yet with the intensity of a springtime allergy or the determination of a starving mosquito, a question imposes itself on my faith and my maturity and my team spirit and my sense of commitment with that blasted question, what's going to happen to me? Will I teach another class? Will I enjoy the kind of connection I had with Todd and George? Will I like the changes in style and method and emphasis and vision? Will I preach another sermon? Remember the, 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 the poem that we used to say as kid? Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? I've been to the palace to see the queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what did you see there? I saw a mouse running under the chair. I'm astounded at how my focus can become so small when my future is so big. Horizon lines also trap me into arrogance. Some time ago, 
I convinced the elder board of a church where I was going to buy an old used pipe organ. I knew I could rebuild it and put it in the church. So as elders do, the deliberation started, and they got intense, and I looked at them and I said, drums and guitars will never make it in the church. (laughs) Ever wonder why Dorothy sings if tiny little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow? Why, why can't I? It's so that we won't make stupid and silly predictions. One of my favorite ways to respond uh, to horizon lines is ebulence. And I'm not sure whether you say it ebulence or ebulence or ebulence. Somebody will have to straighten me out there. But do you remember this gal who appeared on television about seven years ago? Uh, She pops out of a kitchen and she says, are you hungry? And then in her brilliantly conceived promise about honey bunches of oats, she says, it's like a mouthful of joy. Saying the word ebulence is like experiencing a mouthful of joy. When you say it, it kind of trickles all over the brain and down into the body. Well, have you ever seen the movie Enchanted? <laughs> Enchanted is about ebulence. It's about living happily ever after. It's about finding one thing and being so excited about it that we make a bad decision. Giselle is in Andalasia, and she's calling it ever aftering, happily ever after, the destiny of princes and princesses. Before two can become one, there's something you must do. Do you pull each other's tails? Do you feed each other's feet? No, there is something sweeter everybody needs. I've been dreaming of a true love's kiss, and a prince I'm hoping comes with this. What brings ever after so happy? That's the reason we need lips so much. For lips are the only things that touch. So to spend a life in place, just find who you love through truth. going to find a perfect pair of lips, we're going to need a lot more help.
there it is, a prince or princess that solves all our problems, a magic bullet, a genie in the bottle, true love's kiss, the fixer elixir, the hero Dudley Do-Right. Well, I remember ebullience in my own life. A number of years ago, I brought Intrepid home and introduced him to my wife. Intrepid was my new used 1972 Dodge Ram Power Wagon. It was for sale and parked in the back lot at Luby Chevrolet. So when I saw Intrepid, I fell in love had the neatest wheels you ever saw, the throatiest mufflers that ever existed, and a horn that played the theme to Magnificent Seven. So I brought it home, and the first question my wife asked me is, why was it parked in the back lot? <laughs> Those who buy cars will know why, because Intrepid, the name which means brave, nervy, and lion-hearted, turned out to be the most remarkable piece of junk you could imagine. I always wanted a horn that would play the Magnificent Seven. Well, and then there's diligence, kind of the opposite of ebullience. Diligence is searching so hard for a reason not to do something. Uh, a love of perfection, the paralysis of analysis. My diligence is clearly a great excuse for not doing anything. So you have Ken Olson, president and chairman of founder of Digital Equipment, who in 1977 said, there's no reason in the world anyone would want a computer in their home. Or the editor who turned down Dr. Seuss because his writing was too different. Or Steve Ballmer of Microsoft who said, there's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. When the church hired a consultant just a few months ago, I read four of his books. When Brad announced the coming of our candidate, I listened to a half a dozen of his sermons. I reviewed the history of his church tradition. Uh, I, I, I looked at his values. I, I noted the, the nuances in his message. I parsed the questions and answers during our town meeting. And then I thought an awful lot about his single-digit handicap. And I asked myself, where is something wrong here? Is there a flaw? Can I find the perfect imperfection and use it as an excuse not to take one step beyond sight? And I suspect the day is going to come when we see all truth and the love of the perfect will be on the list of the top ten most mixed blessings. And then quite frankly... I had to classify myself when I crossed horizon lines as being obstinate, obstinance. This exchange between Linus and Lucy explains it very well. You're stubborn. Do you know that? On the contrary, I'm not stubborn. I'm merely tenacious. You're the most stubborn person I've ever known. I have tenacity. 
I have the same tenacity that got George Washington through Valley Forge. Ha, she says tactfully. That's a laugh. Stubbornness is a fault. Tenacity is a virtue. You're so stubborn you won't even admit you're stubborn. I cling tenaciously to my very valid view that I'm tenacious. On the other hand, I'll admit to a little mule-headedness. I want to do better. <laughs> you know, when I take one step beyond sight, I want to expect something far more of myself than incoherence when I can't put things together and indifference when I don't care about what is ahead, or self-indulgence when all I can ask is what's going to happen to me, or arrogance when I make silly and stupid predictions, or ebullience when I'm blinded by joy, or diligence when I'm paralyzed by perfection, or obstinance when I feel just like being a poop. I want to have confidence when I take one step beyond sight. Confidence is when I know I can do it. I like to say it the way Pat Benatar says it. Hit me with your best shot. Come on and hit me with your best shot. Hit me with your best shot, fire away. Or the way Julie sings it, all I trust, I lead my heart to, all I trust becomes my own. I have confidence in confidence alone besides which you see I have confidence in me. I'd like to accept Tom Peters' challenge to thrive on chaos. I want to follow Paul's clear and compelling example of acceptance where he says, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. And then after confidence, I want to do acceptance. Acceptance is that quality when I know I will do it. As Paul inspires me when he writes, this one thing I do, I forget what is behind and I strain towards what is ahead and I press towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me. I want to take the zeal and care of George Kirsten and the drive and management skill of Dave McPherson and the depth and courage of Todd Lanting and the talent and commitment of our staff and the amazing power of our location and the teeming potential of new leadership and cross the line and take a step beyond sight. What in the world is the hope of confidence and acceptance as we sit here in church. Today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the birthday of the church. She's thousands of years old today. When Jesus left, those disciples could do nothing but stare into the sky but then they went back to Jerusalem, they put themselves together, and they took one step beyond sight, and then another, and then another, and they proceeded to plant the church, Christ's bride, Christ's lover, Christ's sweetheart, the one for whom he gave his life, and the one he claims as his own, the church, 
They were never the same, and the world was never the same. So in a few seconds, I'm going to ask you to join me in a prayer. Brad will come up and speak to us about our own horizon lines. But this prayer, you can listen to it or you can pray it, I think inspires confidence in all of us to know we can take one step beyond sight. And I hope it inspires acceptance in all of us so we will handle whatever is beyond sight. Will you stand with me and will you say this prayer together with me? And don't say it timidly. There's probably no greater promise than what we could read right now. Together, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.